devotees who are on the path back to the spiritual world. It's an honor, honor to be here to meet all of you and to have some discussion. Is everyone okay? Yeah. All right. And um, thanks very much, Adabal, and offering us your house today in Hardiki. Your world is something that Krishna mentions in the Bhagavad Gita as a place for learning. It's not for enjoyment, actually. It's meant for purification and for learning. In the Gita talk, Krishna talks about the principle of yajna, jagnartakkamanamyatra, loko yam karmabandhana. That the material universe is created as a place where we can improve ourselves. And the human body is especially important. It gives one an opportunity to use one's intellect and free will to develop spiritually. That's a theme that's continued throughout the Vedic teachings. And the Brahma Sutras, which are a summary of all the Upanishads, the first aphorism is a Tato Brahma Jignasa, which means that now that one has come to the human form of life, it's time to inquire. We'll inquire about what? Not the normal things. As Shukadev says in the beginning of the Srimad Bhagavatam, all creatures are asking questions, but birds, squirrels, you have foxes here, a lot of them. I go on an early morning walk and there's foxes, they look at me and then run away. <laughs> Their questions are limited because they don't have the capacity that human beings have to discern causality. They can only see what's in front of them and also ask questions mostly about survival. But human beings have an intellect and we can use it to ask about Brahman. Brahman means what is the greatest? What is the cause of all causes? What is our origin? And we could also perceive causality. Our perceptual horizon is can be unlimited. In other words, we can understand the concept of karma, that if whatever I do, it is causing some effect. And then we can understand also that I've done things in the past and they're coming to me now, just as if you fill up a grain silo with different grades of grain. And I guess if you're into managerial accounting, there's FIFO, LIFO, FILO, you know, first in, last out. If you put first in, last out, then somewhere down the line, when you're bringing grains out, and it was a long time ago that you put them in, you might think, why are the bad grains coming out? So, well, you put them in a while back. So there's this capacity in human form of life to understand what is the purpose of life and also to delay gratification. 
This is one of the points Krishna makes in the Bhagavad Gita that if we only respond to the urges of the senses, which is what animals generally do, then we don't learn much. We simply get caught in the habitual response to the senses and so forth. So part of spiritual life is becoming thoughtful and developing a higher sense of oneself beyond the body. It's one of the first points that Krishna makes in the Bhagavad Gita when Arjuna is in despair. The first chapter of Bhagavad Gita is often translated as the yoga of despair, which is interesting unto itself because there's a way in which when we find ourselves in despair, there's often a teachable moment when we can rise to a higher level. Have you ever noticed that? Otherwise, when all is right with our lives, which is very rarely the case in a complete sense, then it's hard to question why am I doing what I'm doing and why am I suffering and so forth. But Arjuna becomes confused about his duty and then asks Krishna, what is my duty? Please tell me. He gives up on his own power to understand. And one of the first instructions Krishna gives is so foundational to every human, and that is that you're not your body. You're something more than just the physical frame. You can look at the physical frame and understand that it's separate from you just by observation. For instance, if you notice your heart beating, you can isolate yourself as an observer from the heart and see that I'm not my heart. You can see also that you're not your thoughts either. You can notice them and watch them and objectify them. And this is one of the first points Krishna makes in the Bhagavad Gita, you're not your body. So there's a foundational, uh, there are foundational teachings that Krishna gives in the Bhagavad Gita about this world and our purpose in it. And when we're aligned in purpose, when we have an idea about what I'm supposed to do in order to get the most out of my life, then even if the world goes on as it is, changing and there are reversals in our life and so forth, we'll still be happy because we have a sense of making progress in spiritual life. Krishna does say in the Gita, Abrahma bhuvana loka punar avartinorjuna mamu peta punar janmana vidite that from the highest planet in the material world down to the lowest, all their places of misery, wherein repeated birth and death take place, but one who's able to transcend the material world can achieve the highest abode, the spiritual world, which is the aim of the human life. In the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna also mentions that there is a cause to our suffering. He says, Purusha prakriti stohi bhunte prakriti jangunan karanam guna samgosya sarasadyoni janmasu. He says that whatever good or bad we find in our life, sarasad, yoni janmasu, it's, there's a cause for it. And he says, karanam guna samgosya, it's the way we've associated ourselves with the gunas or the three modes of material nature. Whatever association we're getting and we have had deforms our own attitude and personality and habits and so forth. And this directs us in a 
to a, in a certain to a certain destination so we can understand also how we got to where we are now and krishna talks about also how to transcend the modes of material nature in the gita he says that if you perform yoga especially devotional service or bhakti yoga then you can rise just as if you get in an airplane and you're going down the runway going faster faster and you're hopefully by the end of the runway the airplane lifts off and you can feel okay i'm not on the ground anymore i'm lifting and then you can go above the clouds even if it's a very cloudy day you can rise up and then you'll see oh it's sunny up here so in the Gita, Krishna says, "Mam chayo vyavicharena bhakti yogena sevate sagunan samatichaitan brahma bhuyayakalpate," which means that for one who takes to the practice of devotional service and is consistent with it, such a person gradually rises above the three modes of material nature: goodness, passion, ignorance, sattva, rajas, and tamas. And comes to the transcendental position. Mam chayo vyabhicharena bhakti yogena sevate. If you do that service in devotional service, it's called devotional service. Sagunan samatityaitan means that you can rise above the three modes of material nature. And what happens? Brahma bhuyayakopate. You come to the level of Brahman, to the spiritual platform. And in that uh, platform of Brahman or spirit, we uh, start to feel naturally satisfied in the material world because I'm looking at an inferior energy the material world Krishna catalogs in the seventh chapter of the Gita he says the material energies are made of earth water fire air ether mind, intelligence, and ego. That's the eight gross and subtle material elements. But then he says, Besides these, there's a superior energy. This is big news. Because I can go on lifetime after lifetime thinking I'm part of the material world. Did you ever think that? part of the material world yeah if yeah. you say if someone's asked you like who are you and you'll say I'm such and such I'm Billy Bob Preston I'm from Kentucky and it's like that's incorrect you're not actually from the, this world at all Krishna says so he says there's a superior energy and what is the superior energy it's the living entity that's animating the body. So we're in the body, but we're not the body. Besides the gross, material, gross and subtle material elements, there is the soul or the atma. And the atma resides within the area of the heart and it animates the body through consciousness. The moment that the Atma leaves the body, the body no longer radiates consciousness. If you've ever been with somebody who's left their body, then you'll notice nobody home anymore. Complete stillness, and at that time the body begins to 
deteriorate immediately. As soon as the, the superior force is no longer within the body, the body begins to go through uh, various uh, forms of breaking down. That is, the elements break down, there's rigor mortis, and then the body deteriorates completely without the support of the superior energy. And later in the Gita, Krishna talks about how it is that we take one body after another in the material world. So this morning I was on a walk. There's a public path near where we're staying. And I think somebody forgot to pick up the garbage there. We're on a campaign, by the way. We got some of those uh, long sticks that with the little clippers on the end. And we were out there today, weren't we? We formed a team. We're going to get vests and everything and start a branded company to clean up all the neighborhoods. But <clears throat> there is a garbage can at the beginning of the pathway, and I think somebody forgot to clean it out. Every time I go by there, I have to hold my breath because it's, <laughs> it's rotting. So Krishna says in the Gita, Shariram yarabapnoti yachchap yukramatishvara grihitvaitani samyati vayur gandam ivashayat. You recognize all these words, or you already know all these verses, I'm sure. But it's he's saying that just as the air carries an aroma, I wouldn't exactly characterize that garbage can as having an aroma. That sounds too elegant of a term for that. It's more of a stench. But the air carries it, and then I get a sense that air is carrying that. And so he says... Our consciousness, the varied states of consciousness we develop in association with the three modes of material nature in this world, carry us from one gross body to the next. And if you've ever had the experience of your smartphone breaking down, or did you ever dro accidentally drop it off a bridge or something like that? Yeah? Yes. Oh, how exciting. So you don't really lament that much, because you already know it's backed up. It's backed up, and all you have to do is get new hardware. So in the Gita, Krishna is describing this, uh, the way we change from one gross body to another is that we take our software with us. The subtle body, which is mind, intelligence, and ego, all together called the chitta, as Patanjali Muni gives a detailed description of this, as you know very well, in the Yoga Sutras. He talks about how the conglomerate of our consciousness is what determines our next body. He says the next body that we get in this world is a filling in of the desires and the consciousness that we've developed in this life. And if you can imagine yourself walking on wet sand with your bare feet, and if you turn back and look, you'll see impressions of your feet in the sand. If you were to put something like plaster of Paris in those impressions and then take them out again, you would note that it's an exact replica of your foot. So Patanjali Muni says that the aggregate of our desires when we leave this gross physical body is recorded there in the subtle body, sometimes known as the subconscious mind. And it's the material nature is accommodating. It fills in those desires, and that's the next body that we get according to our desires. So Krishna says, our desire... And our consciousness has a certain kind of aroma because of the things it's touched. Like the air is neutral, right? But it crosses over garbage and then it smells like garbage. Or it crosses over a rose garden, more likely here in England. 
famous for rose gardens. And then it smells sweet like roses, right? So then he says, That he describes this changing from one body to the next to be utkramantam. So all of you who uh, speak languages related to Sanskrit know utkrama means you're stepping out. In fact, I'm just working on a book right now and the title is Stepping Out. And it's all about the process of reincarnation. It's more for Western audiences, for people to understand what it means, give some context from the Bhagavad Gita and other Vedic scriptures, what's actually happening. So he says, Utkramantam. Interesting, right? You stepped out. Where is he? You stepped out. Stepped out of his body. Utkramantam sitam bapi bunjanan bhagunam mitam. If you know what's happening, you can understand it. You're not even disturbed by it. And he said, Vimuna nanapashanti, if you're very uh, uneducated in this, Vimudha means you're kind of out of it. Nanapashanti, uh, you can't see what's happening and it becomes bewildering to you. So he recommends then in the next verse that we should study the science and understand what's actually taking place. So just as when you're the hardware of your phone gets lost or damaged, you get a new one, everything's recorded in the cloud, right? Please say yes. yes. Yeah, hopefully. And then, then you get a new phone, and you get all your apps back, and everything's back online. So in a, in a similar way, we're carrying with us our subtle body from one gross body to the next. And what determines our next body? the way we've associated ourselves and the way we've developed our consciousness. So the yoga is meant to refine the consciousness, to come to the perfection of consciousness, which is to reunite our consciousness with the ultimate object. Now, we look for various objects to appreciate in this world, don't we? Like, who here has ever uh, idolized a sports figure? I used to do when I was a kid. I loved track and field. And I, I, uh, I had my heroes. I had their pictures on my wall. Nowadays I see that when people, um, when people go to sporting matches, I don't know if you have that here in, in England, but in America when people go, they have a favorite team that they like, they'll wear the jersey. And even more than that, there's a special player on the team they like. Right? Have you ever? Do you have that here? They'll wear the player's name on their back, and they'll identify with a particular player. Is that happen here? Yes. Who's the player? Who is it that they? Sacco. Sacco. What's his name? Bukaya Sacco. Does that ring a bell to anybody? You all don't watch enough. What is it? Cricket or football? Football. Yeah. Don't want you enough football. So the idea is it's our natural tendency to look for an object to put our affection, to put our love. This is one of the basic tenets of the teachings of Bhagavad Gita and Srimad Bhagavatam. Is by nature we're appreciators. By nature we love. It's that's the nature of the heart. You can see it in any species, because we're all souls. It's not just human, it's love. You can see animals love their offspring. Bears don't come close to the cubs. 
mother bear will come running out and say, don't come, don't even look at them. She's so protective of the animals. And other species too, they, they're very much attached to their offspring and so forth. So we're always looking for the place, where to repose our love. When we repose our love here in the material world, it comes and goes. Somehow or other, we're disconnected. There's a story in the Srimad Bhagavatam about a king named Suyagya. Actually, you'll be surprised to know that this story was told to his family by Hiranyakashipu. Does anybody know Hiranyakashipu? He's the anti-hero of the story of Varnashringadev. And, however, when his brother Hiranyaka, means golden-eyed, was killed by Vishnu, he became, first of all, vehemently uh, inimical towards Vishnu. And what's more, he went to, uh, to appease his family, because when you lose a family member, then there's a heavy heart. So he was talking to them about, interestingly enough, Vedic principles, even though he's known as a great Asura. So Hiranyakashi Pu was gathered his family together and he was telling them about uh, Atma Tattva Gyan, the knowledge of the self. Because actually Hiranyakashipu was from the spiritual world. Do you know who he was originally? Take your choice, Jai or Vijay. <laughs> you know the story of Jai and Vijay. They got cursed by the four Kumaras to come and be enemies of the Supreme Lord for three lives. So that plays out throughout the Srimad Bhagavatam. That's a long story, but I'm going to cut to the chase here. Well, Hiranyakashipu was telling the story of Suyagya and teaching Atmatapagyan to his family members. The only way to appease the heart of someone who's lost a loved one is to give knowledge of the self. And so he told a story about this king who fought his last battle. He was a valiant king. He had won so many battles, and then finally he lost, and he was killed on the battlefield. His hair was dusty gray, and he had bitten his lip as he fell to the ground dead to show his valor, his limbs broken and cut in the battle. And he had many wives, queens, who had come and they were clutching his body on the battlefield, and they were wailing. As when you lose your spouse or somebody very dear to you and your life is suddenly changed and this ocean of emotion comes out of your heart. So they're their way crying and of course in the Vedic system there's a way in which the body is supposed to be cremated before the sun goes down. So the time was approaching. So Yamaraj, who's the one who oversees the kingdom of death and there's a judgment process for each soul to be then adjudicated and put into their next situation. He noticed that they were holding on to the body and that they were lamenting severely. So he showed up there on the battlefield in the form of a five-year-old boy. And he approached the distraught queens. Five-year-old boy can go anywhere, no one will mind. And he said, why are you crying? And through their tears, they said, our husband, the king, is gone. He said, gone? He's right there. I don't see what you're talking about. And they said, no, no, child, you don't understand. 
And then he said, no, you don't understand. You never saw your husband. You only saw the body of your husband, but your husband was beyond your vision. He's a spiritual being. He's left the body, but the body's still there. It's the same ears, the same legs, same hands, fingers, toes, everything same. Heck, we all know this. There's a phenomenon called smashana vairagya, which means the renunciation of the crematorium. When everyone goes to the funeral, they become very renounced from the world and say, Ram Nam Satyahe, oh, it's all true. You know, self-realization. Then we walk away and three days later, business as usual, forget everything, right? So, in, in, in teaching them this lesson, he showed that actually you never saw your husband. So, we can miss completely the soul. The soul of the matter, we say, what to speak of the soul that maintains this body, which is made of matter. And we can miss the whole point of life. So we're, we're not to miss the point of life. The Bhagavad Gita is there to say, find out what the main point is. Once there were these workers on the roadside, and there was a man observing them pull up and then start their work. And each one had a shovel. And one was digging a hole. And then the other person, right after he had dug the hole, filled it in. And they went on for half a mile. They, one would dig a hole, the other one would fill it right back in, and they kept moving down the line. And finally, the observer became curious, so he walked over and he said, Excuse me, but what are you guys doing? And they said, Oh, we're planting trees. I said, Planting trees? I see one person digging a hole, the other one filling it back in. And they answered, Well, the other guy who puts the seed in is sick today. <laughs> and there's a way in which if we miss this point that we're not the body, we're actually the soul within the body, and that the world is not meant for our enjoyment. It's not meant to get comfy here, although there's nothing wrong with being comfortable. We have to be in a natural condition of life, two feet on the ground, and take what we need, but not more than that. Not with an expectation that I'll Stay here permanently. We have to know, Krishna says, Dehino sminyata dehe komaran yovaranjara tata dehantra prakpir dhirastatranamuyuti. He said, Know this for certain that the body is a changing thing, just like a river. You can't step in the same river twice. Because we call it one thing. We call it the Kaveri or we call it the Ganga. But Ganga is always moving, it's never the same river. And this body, you can't breathe in the same body twice. Try it. Take a breath. Take another. It's not the same body. And you breathe in the first time because it's constantly changing. But I take it as a permanent thing. And I take whatever I have now is permanent. Everything around me is permanent. And Krishna says, don't do that. Know that you're the soul within the body. The body's always changing, and you're the observer of the body. And meanwhile, he says, it's not just to become detached from the body. That's not the point. The point is to use the body for service. There are three paths in life, as Krishna describes in the Bhagavad Gita. There's the path of material enjoyment, 
That means I try to get comfortable in the material world. I try to find a way that I can stay here as long as possible. There are many philosophers, like the Karma Mimamsas, they try to perform yagya, following the Vedic principles, to try to stay above the material world. Just trend towards Swargaloka. They're called elevationists. And in, in this world, of when people don't know about Vedic principles and so forth, they just try to get enough money. Because figure, if I have enough money, then I'll just cruise. Good luck with that. Something always happens. It's the, the money, people, there are reversals of, of fortune all the time. And, he, he, and everybody knows, because we're in England and this is the home of the Beatles, they said, money can't buy me love. You can't get everything from money, you can get very few things from money. So the path of material enjoyment is fraught with difficulty. It never works quite the way we want it to. Then there's the path of renunciation, of giving up the world. That also doesn't work because it's not our world to give up. If you go into the Bank of England and say, I renounce this bank, everyone will look at you like you're crazy because it's not your bank to give up. But there's a third path, which is the path of devotional service. And that is to see everything in the universe as paraphernalia to be used in service to the Supreme. That makes sense. I'll tell you how it makes sense. Let's just say you're standing in line at the super. Do you call them supers here? No. What do you call supermarket? Supermarket? Supermarket, okay. And where do they call them supers? They call them supermarkets back home. Okay, say you're at the supermarket and you're standing in line and somebody drops a 20-pound note on the ground. <coughs> what are your choices? Pick it up and give it back, okay? What are two more choices? Pick it up, take it. What's your third choice? Just leave it there, right? Okay, so you saw the person drop it. You can pick it up and keep it, and then what are you called? A thief. <laughs> plus, plus, you'll never be peaceful because you'll have this sense that, you know, I took something from somebody. And if you just leave it on the ground, how do you feel? Kind of foolish, maybe, right? Somebody else will pick it up, and you know, it's like, I should have picked it up, I shouldn't have picked it up they'll have some cognitive dissonance about that. But if you pick it up and give it back, how do you feel? Happy. So there's a way that devotional service is the righteous path in life. In the Sri Upanishad, it is said, Everything animate or inanimate within the universe is controlled and owned by the Lord. One should therefore accept only those things that are necessary for oneself and set aside as one's quota, and one should not accept other things, knowing well to whom they belong. If we live our life as a life of service, whatever we have, including our bodies and minds, we use in service to the Supreme, then we'll be supremely happy. This is the promise of the Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna says, whatever you use in the service of Krishna changes in its quality, 
just like if you take an iron rod and you put it in fire and you leave it there, it becomes hot, hotter, and at the high, hottest stage it becomes fire itself. If you've ever seen a blacksmith work, have you? Yeah. We've seen it in Japan. We go to a place called Takayama in the mountains and they preserve the old art of blacksmithing. And we'll walk by in the morning, verification, yes. have a witness. <laughs> they put the iron rods in the fire and we come back five hours later, they're red hot. They've transformed. And in a similar way, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita, Brahmarpanam Brahmahavir Brahmagnao Brahmanohutam Brahmaiva Tenagantabhya Brahma Karma Samadhina Whatever we have that we use in the service of Krishna, that transforms from material to spiritual. So if we use our mind for Krishna, as Krishna says in the Gita, Manmana Bhavamad Bhakto, use your mind to think of me, Krishna. And he says, Yet Koroshi Yarashnashiya Juhosud Dadasiyat Yatapasyasikontiatat Kurushvabmanarpanam. Whatever you eat, whatever you offer, give away, whatever austerities you perform, make it as an offering to me. And when you do that, then he says that everything that you have, everything that you that you're using transforms. It's no longer material, it becomes spiritual. And he gives another metaphor for those who live this kind of lifestyle. He says, Brahmanyadai Karmani Sangham Tyakva Karotiya Lipitena Sapapena Padma Patram Ivambasa. And that is the metaphor of the lotus flower. It's called Padmaja. Ja means to be born, and Padma means mud. Padmaja means it's born from mud. So the lotus is born out of the bottom of the pond where all the mud is. You'd expect it to be a very ugly thing because it was born in mud. But it's actually the most beautiful of all God's creations. Subjective. But as it comes up to the top of the water and it spreads out its leaves, you'll notice that even if it's splashed by the water, as the water rocks on the top of the pond, the water never sticks. It runs right off. Have you seen it? In Osaka, where we go, there's a a botanical garden there and they have about 40 different kinds of lotus flowers and in the summertime if you can tolerate the heat there you can sit there and look at the lotuses and the water splashes on them and it comes right off so krishna gives this example if while you're doing your work in the world while you're living in a house or using a car whatever you need to survive in this world, whatever you're taking. He says, if you make it as an offering to, to God, don't think this is mine, think this belongs to God. And whatever work you're doing, say, I'm doing it for God. And give the result of the work to God. Don't claim it to be yours. He says, if you live like that in this world, then you live like the lotus. Even though you're in the mud of the material world, then you're never touched by it. The mud or the water never touches you. It rolls right off because your intention is right. You're on that middle path where you're dedicating everything to the Supreme. So this is a simple and very commonsensical way to live. The Bhagavad Gita is the wisdom that can solve the world's problems and the problems that anybody has in it. The problems aren't that we have the wrong leader. I mean, that can 
make things worse, obviously. Uh, we can attest to that. But there's, it, it's not something we can solve on a level of material intelligence. We have to take spiritual principles in order to solve the problems of life. The biggest problem is, one problem is this is running out of batteries. One, the biggest problem is we're being moved along from one body to the next in this world. We call that death. We don't like it, right? And we're not going to take it anymore, right? Say yes. No, we're not going to tolerate it. We're going to uh, try for uh, spiritual perfection. So that can't be solved by any stopgap measure. It has to be solved by the highest spiritual principles. And that comes from the Bhagavad Gita. Every, every commonsensical spiritual principle that's needed for a human being is there in the Bhagavad Gita. So the greatest need in human society right now is for those who have an appreciation for the fact that life is meant to be lived for a spiritual cause to embrace that cause and then also teach it to other people. Because without inculcation of spiritual principles in schools and amongst the society and social groups where people, they don't have to change their religion. They just have to adopt the universal spiritual principles of the Bhagavad Gita in order to solve the problems of life and to also make the world more in harmony with nature. Right now it's being systematically dismantled because of the way we're carrying on in the world. So those are a few thoughts about the Bhagavad Gita and some other Shastras slightly randomly presented but hopefully it came into a sense of resonance for you because you all know the Bhagavad Gita better than me and know all these principles already. I'm just recounting them the way I hear them from my teacher, passing them on as he asked us to do for our own purification. So maybe if you'd like to, you could ask a question to extend the conversation for, for a few more minutes, or if you have a, a, an observation about anything that I presented from the Bhagavad Gita that you'd like to reflect back. That could be interesting, right? Do you feel like it? Up for it? Let's try. What did you hear? that's stuck in your mind that you'd like to reflect back. All you have to say is, I heard this and it was interesting. Or, I heard that and I didn't understand it, or I think you got it wrong, how about this? Something like that. You want to try? Yes? I think uh, the point that you mentioned about uh, our final, final, the body, the soul leaves the body, and we go to the commission ground and say, Ram, Ram, Satya, that's the moment we actually try to reflect back and connect our spiritualism there. But within two, three days, correctly said that we forget everything and we go back to our business as usual. I think that is the point if we carry from today's conversation that, that going back is not the true thing we should be doing. Of course, whatever we are doing in this world now, if we give it back to the Almighty, in the name of Almighty, then we can actually continue that thought of Ram Ram Sakti for the rest of our life. I think that's what I'm getting today. Well, I like the way you put things. Sounds better than when, sounds better when you say it than when I said it. I really appreciate that point. Yeah, I like your your point about carrying that forward. 
being having those eyes of knowledge to understand that we're just passing through. A lot of that happened during the pandemic. I was doing some talks. I live in Silicon Valley and we go regularly to a few of the corporations there like Intel and Google and Salesforce to give talks. And then when the pandemic started, it all went online like everything else. And the first few talks I gave were really about understanding the context of where we are. And one of the mantras that really helped everybody, the reminder that this too shall pass. Everything's just passing through. When you get too attached to the idea that I'm always going to have this body or whatever I have, if I try to hold in place, it becomes uh, an onerous struggle to maintain that. And having a sense of the temporality of the world, not to the sense of giving it all up, but just saying that better to use it in the service of the Lord, as you just said. That was really nice. Thank you. Beautiful thought. Yeah, it's nice to talk about the Gita, isn't it? Yes, would you please? Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Am I right in thinking that She said, is she right in thinking that the Bhagavad Gita that the Bhagavad Gita is the only scripture where God has revealed himself as God? In other words, Krishna has said, I am God. No other scripture has actually revealed it? No other scripture has has really revealed that directly. Yes, in the the pointed way in which Krishna does say, for instance, Matak paratanam nanyat kinchadasti dananjaya maisarvamidam protam sutre manigana iva He declares in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 7, that I am the Supreme. Uh, this is this is me. I mean, there are a lot of um, scriptures in the world, and they refer to they refer to the supreme or the messenger of the supreme, and so forth. Uh, but uh, oftentimes, there's an impersonal conclusion, and there's no aham or I speaking that this is me, and this is you know who I am. I would say that it's it's the most uh, pointed and clear declaration of any shastra, of scriptures that I know of. Yeah, you're welcome. A couple more points. It's good to bring them all back up again. Whatever you heard, any points? That... Yeah. Hi, Krishna. I just want to say on the point you're making when you're leaving your body. Um, can you hear? Yeah. yeah, you can hear over there? Okay, great. So, with the point when you're actually leaving your body and your consciousness is focused on a specific thing, like it could be Krishna, um, it is said that you'll go to the material, I mean, the spiritual realm and not come back to do that? Because obviously, uh, it says in the Gita that you meditate on Krishna. And uh, at the time, you know, on time to time in your body, when you pass your, your body and your mind and your consciousness is on Krishna, is it that you go to the spiritual world and don't come back to the material world? Is that what it's saying? Yeah, it says it twice in the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, <clears throat> first of all, he gives, in chapter 8 of the Bhagavad Gita, which is called Attaining the Supreme, 
Krishna mentions in answer to Arjuna's question about the process of extricating oneself from the material world, he says, Antakali chamami vasmaran mukvakalivaram. He's talking about Antakali at the end of uh, the time of this body, that if you are able to fix your mind on the Supreme, then you can attain the Supreme. And then in the next verse he says, Yang yang vapisvanan bhavam tajatyante kalevaram tamtam evaitikonteya sadatad bhava bhavita That whatever you meditate on when you leave this body, that you'll attain without fail. So there's... It's not an intellectual process. When we lose the facility of our senses... It's a um, helpless condition. Actually, we're always in a helpless condition, but through the false ego, I think I'm the controller, that I'm doing everything. But at the time of death, it becomes much more obvious to us that we don't have control over it. And therefore, it's, it's compelling. What we've cultivated throughout our life is kind of... Uh, it comes as an aggregate. And what we're attracted to naturally that's what will gravitate towards so it requires a bit of a cultivation throughout one's life yes add to that so if normally if you aren't in, involved in the, the sort of the teaching and understanding about krishna for example or source or you know whatever god the person actually uh, connects with normally at that time of death would be thinking about potentially your family mm-hmm. the people you're leaving behind Automatically, if you know what I mean. Yes. Rather than thinking of the greater, you know, the greater consciousness or whatever greater being out there. So yes. I guess the teaching that allows you to think about that at that time. Otherwise, you'd just be thinking about the material things, right? That's correct. So there's stories in the Srimad Bhagavatam that you know better than me, like the story of Bharat Maharaj. Bharat was a great king. He had everything, but preemptively he left his kingdom and he went to the forest to meditate. And at that time he was doing a practice of yoga where he was meditating on the Lord within the sun. As you all know, the Gayatri Mantra, Om Bhuravasa, Tatsavitor Vrenyam, etc. And this is a worship of uh, Surya Narayan who's there within the sun. So that was his deity and he was meditating upon the Lord, to a great effect, he was making a lot of progress in his spiritual life. And then one day, while he was sitting, a deer had been frightened by the roar of a lion and then tried to jump across the river. Deers can really jump high and far. But this deer was pregnant. And as she jumped, she miscarried and died. And the fawn... Uh, came out as a miscarriage and survived but it was in the water and he from his vantage point could see that fawn in the water and rose up and rescued it from the water then he kept it near his encampment where he was practicing his yoga and baby anything are cute but baby deer, forget about it. It's the cutest thing on earth. It's got little spindly legs and it looks so helpless and gentle. So 
he transferred all of his attention from worshiping the sun god to this little deer. Then he started feeding it. And of course, you feed an animal, it becomes your devotee for life. And then the deer was growing up, and his attachment to the deer became complete. And he gave his whole heart and soul to the deer, so much so that he became mad out of love for the deer. And he was writing poetry and singing to the deer. And as he walked in the moonlight, he was seeing the pockmarks on the moon and saying, Oh, my dear, that's his, these are your footprints. You've beautified this surface of the moon with your footprints. You can see how he had become fully absorbed emotionally in the deer. So then, in course of time, as happens with everybody, he left his body and he was fully absorbed in thinking of the deer. So what do you think happened? He came back as a deer. He had one advantage, though, because as Krishna describes in the Gita, in the sixth chapter, that if you make progress in spiritual life, you never lose it. It's not like when you, know, you have a business and you get ahead and then you lose it all. You've lost it all, basically. <laughs> but in spiritual life, even if you fall back from where you were, you get forward progress is counted. So he had the advantage in his body as a deer that he remembered his past life as King Bharat. And the deer, as a deer, he went back to the ashram where he had first learned to practice Ashanga Yoga. And he was practicing as a deer the best he could. If you ever see a deer doing yoga asanas, you may guess what's going on. And then in his next life, he became a great saint named Jad Bharat. He was a saint because now he got his human body back and he also had full determination that never again. Have you ever had that feeling? Never again? Like you did something and you prayed to God and you said, if you get me out of this one, I'm going to be good from now on. So he had that full determination in the next life as Jad Bharat. And he pretended to be dead to the world. That's why he's called Jada Bharat. Jada means, like Jada Bhuti means the, the intelligence of a stone. So he, he pretended to be ignorant, just so he wouldn't get involved in human society or family life or anything like that. And then he attained to perfection after that lifetime. So it's a long story, but the fact is that the Shastras tell us that what we're absorbed in when we leave the body is definitely what we'll attain when we leave. And it takes, as you're saying so astutely, it takes practice. Whatever we're accustomed to doing, that's what we're going to gravitate. If you're not accustomed to travel, when you leave your house, it's a traumatic experience. Because like, what about all my stuff? What's going to happen to my house? And this and that. Because... <laughs> I always compare travel to a mini death. But when you die, you don't get to choose what you take with it with you. But you do take it with you because whatever you're attached to when you leave, and you can see this when you go on a long trip, you're thinking like, what about my stuff? Who's going to take care of this? Who's going to take care of that? When you leave the body, most people, as you said, they're thinking, who's going to take care of my family? What about my bank balance? Mine's fully attached. That's why it's a smart idea to transfer your assets before you leave. Just like in America, I don't know if you have it here, but where's devil? There's a, 
there's a um, revocable living trust. This is an instrument you can get in America. They have something like here. I'll describe what it is. You transfer all your assets, your house, your whatever uh, equities you have. You put it all in the trust. So then you become, it no longer belongs to an individual, it belongs to the trust. There's another one called the charitable remainder trust that you can do. And charitable remainder trust means you give all your assets, including your house and everything like that, to, to a charity. And then you get an annuity for life based on the, the value of what you have given. And when you leave, then it all goes to the charity. So the idea is, that even in the you know, tax laws, right? <laughs> it's written in. Don't try to claim it yourself. <laughs> the more you claim yours that is yours, the more it's taxable, right? And the, the more you can defer and say, like, that didn't belong to me. That's the company. See, it's not me. <laughs> it's the company. <laughs> you don't pay tax on that. So it's the same in spiritual life, too. The basic principle is don't claim anything as yours. You say, everything belongs to God. Yes, I'll use it in his service, but I'm not touching it. Like a bank teller. A bank teller counts money all day long, right? And then at the end of the day, if the bank teller thinks, I'll take one pound and I'll put it in my pocket. Is that okay? Is it okay? No. Are you convinced, right? It's not okay? They catch it on camera and they'll go, that's all right, it's just one pound. It's not a big deal. <laughs> no, he'll be fired. So the principle's the same. In the human form of life, we're not to touch anything. We can't say, this is mine, that's mine. That's Only thing set aside is our quota so that we can survive in this world in, in the way that we need to. But everything we say belongs to Krishna. And everything I use for Krishna, it's not my house, not my family, not my car, not my money, everything's Krishna's. And if, you, if we're practiced at doing that, when the time comes when we're leaving this body and the tax collector comes to say, okay, give all your stuff back, it's like, sorry, I already gave it away. I don't have anything. <laughs> I'm fully divested. There are no more assets whatsoever. So we give away all our assets to whom they belong. And then we feel satisfied because we're actually only satisfied by service. Are you watching the time? You're supposed to tell me. It'll be okay time. Okay. Maybe take one or two more questions. Maharaj, yes. can I ask you, what inspired you to become Krishna conscious in the first place, going back? If you can let us know, please. Um, I think it was... Krishna. <laughs> when I was when I was young, I grew up in California. My family was uh, educated. My f mother and father both taught at university, and they were thoughtful people. They weren't religious at all, like not in a you know in a um, traditional sense. They never took me to church ever. We never talked about God, although we did celebrate Christmas which is kind of more of a social holiday. But when I was a kid, I always thought that uh, I had a sense that death was a deal breaker for me. Because I had, a, I had a feeling that if I have to die, then what's the use of everything I'm doing right now? And around the time I was in first grade, our president was assassinated. It was President Kennedy. 
And I remember being sent home from school with a note on my pinned to my shirt. And my mom was waiting for me, and she hugged me and said, Are you okay? And I didn't know if I was okay. I went to my room, and I just sat there. And I was thinking, I don't like this one bit, this whole deal here. I don't like it. And uh, as I went through my school days, by the time I got to high school, and the world was a very different place, there was a lot of... The, the world seemed like a tentative place. The Vietnam War was on. I missed the draft because uh, I fell in the age group where I never really got drafted. But a lot of people around me were. And there were, at, around that time, there were, the music of the time was about investigate what's most important in life. And also, there were kids going off to war and saying, why, why would we fight and die for something we don't believe in? And there was a lot of questions in the air at that time. And I had a good friend who was a super athlete, and he went off into the wilderness once with uh, backpacking with a friend, and he never came back, and nobody ever found him either. He was just lost forever. And incidents like that really made me question, what is the purpose of life? So around my junior year in high school, I had started reading uh, books from the East, and... The book that really set me off uh, going in the direction of Krishna consciousness was given to me by a friend in school. I still have it because my mother kept it. It was a little Bhagavad Gita about this big and it had all the verses in it. And I read that book over and over and over again. It just answered all my questions. And then a friend of mine from high school gave me a Back to Godhead magazine. He didn't want it. But some devotee came up to him and, as he said, took his last 50 cents. I gave it to some Hare Krishna. And he said, I'm not into this stuff, but I'll bet you are. He gave it to me. And then when I saw the richness of Prabhupada's teachings I, and understood that he had a Bhagavad Gita, I went to a bookstore called Shambhala Books and I got that book. And I read it and uh, was convinced that I wanted to be a devotee. So, and then my parents, lucky for me, why it was Krishna's arrangement, were very liberal, and they allowed to me to move into the ashram while I was still underage. I was uh, 16 at the time. They, they first made the argument that I should finish high school and also come of age. 18 is the age. You can make your own choice. And uh, we couldn't come to terms on that deal. I kind of needed to move in the ashram ahead of time. And they kept a watchful eye over me in the ashram. I mean, they check in with the temple president and everything like that to make sure I was okay and send me things. But they did let me enter into it, and that's kind of how I started. I was a brahmachari for 13 years, and then through mutual arrangement uh, of friends, I met my wife near Akula, and uh, she had been a practitioner in some very similar circumstances of leaving home when she was younger, youngish, and uh, becoming a full-time devotee. Isn't that true? Do you want to mention it really quickly? You have the mic. Oh, you have a mic? Thank you. 
I was uh, raised Catholic, went to Catholic school, went to church. I liked Catholicism, but when I got to about the age of 13, 14, and started asking the priests and the sisters and the brothers uh, questions, I wasn't getting satisfactory answers. And so I started uh, looking into Eastern religions. There was there were books available, and so uh, one of them was Autobiography of a Yogi. And but that didn't appeal to me at all because it was quite impersonal. And I remember reading that his his guru lived in the in a mountain cave and lived on air, didn't eat, or, and that just didn't appeal to me. <laughs> so I kept searching, and uh, some traveling Hare Krishna monks came to the area I was living in, in California, and uh, we started, myself and some friends, started going to their program, and we were able to ask all the questions we wanted to, and they were able to answer them, and they could give us books, and we could read about it, and there was feasting, and kirtan, it was, it was lovely. And so we, that was in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and uh, the, the monks, Sanyasi and his traveling brahmacharis, brought us down to Los Angeles, where we, uh, there was a large Grihasta community. And we were accepted into that community and felt right at home. And here I am, 50 years later. <laughs> yes, yes. Here, let's pass. I just want to share my personal experience today. Um, Please do. I have. I run uh, one of the small businesses, and it's not been going so great. And I was very tense when I was coming into the house. <laughs> and the moment I entered, that's where I realized the power of Kirtan and the Mahamantra. Mm -hmm. that the moment I sat down here, all my worries were gone. I was chanting the mantra, and I was completely at peace and happy. So my question to you, Maharaj, is that what does Mahamantra do to you? to get this happiness and peace within yourself. And what is the, I mean, just wanted to understand the process, that what it actually, how it connects you to the Almighty Krishna here, which I actually felt. So I thought I'd share with everyone here. That's really beautiful. Because it's practical. You know, we can feel it when we come from outside anywhere and then we come into a spiritual environment it's something we naturally feel directly it's something krishna says in the bhagavad-gita that the perfection of dharma or religion is that you experience it directly and another verse given in the Srimad bhagavatam says bhakti parishanu bhavo viraktir anyata traisha trika ekakala and compares the practice of chanting Hare Krishna and spiritual life to be like eating food. When you're hungry and you eat a good meal, the verse I just quoted says you get nourishment, satisfaction, and your hunger goes away with every bite. And you know it for yourself. Nobody has to fly in and give you a certificate. 
you understand. And similarly, when we chant Hare Krishna, we can directly appreciate the fact that we're being nourished. We feel satisfaction in our heart. We also uh, feel what is called virakti. We're not attracted to things that we were before because we're already full. We feel that spiritual nourishment. Like there are bad habits. Like today we did a cleanup. We started a cleanup company in our neighborhood. <laughs> and we launched it today. It's we got inner yoga cleaning. Inner yoga cleaning. <laughs> and we just started in our neighborhood, right? We started uh, picking up trash and putting them into uh, the little containers and taking it away and making the neighborhood look better. And we're just f feeling... Uh, like there's an internal process of cleansing also. We, we, uh, we pick up all kinds of trash in the form of unnecessary desires called anartas. So the chanting of Hare Krishna, it satisfies us just like eating a good meal and then, we've, then we also get rid of the other things. We just drop them because like, oh, why would I touch that? It's, it's a nasty thing. So the, the, na the name of Krishna and Krishna's self are non-different. This is, comes in the Padma Purana and says, Nama Chintamani Krishna's Chaitanya Rasa Vigraha Purnashudho Nitya Mukto Vinatvam Nama Namino which means that there's no difference at all between Krishna and his name. Vinatvam Nama Namino No difference between Krishna and his name. And what's the characteristic of Krishna's name? Nama Chintamani. So Chintamani means uh, the philosopher's stone means if you touch it to something, then that thing transforms into the most valuable substance. You can touch it anywhere, and then boom, it transforms. So it transforms our heart that way. And also, Chaitanya Rasa Vigra, the name is alive. It's not a dead thing. It's not just regular sound vibration, but it's actually living. And the Rasa means that there's, there's a taste in it. We can taste it when we chant Hare Krishna. And Vigraha means the form of Krishna is present in his name also. Purna Shudho means it's complete, nothing lacking. And Shudho means completely pure. Nitya Mukto means it's eternally liberated sound vibration. The sound vibration in the material world, uh, you know, Bollywood or whatever, there's, there's a, you know, a stimulation to the senses, but it's dead. It's just matter. It's like eating ice cream or something. I mean, nothing wrong with ice cream. But it's, it's like trying to enjoy the material world, the dead material world. You don't get any ultimate spiritual satisfaction, but the chanting Hare Krishna gives that spiritual satisfaction. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu taught that if you want to contact God, you can do it directly and you can do it immediately by chanting His names. Some people say, where's God? And you say, He's in heaven. Some people say, uh, I'm thirsty, can I have a glass of water? And they say, yeah, it's in the clouds. Good luck getting that. They say, I'm thirsty, give me some water. And you say, it's in the ground, you can dig for it. But that's like in the yoga process, you sit down for 10,000 years and maybe you can, you can perceive the super soul in your heart. But with chanting Hare Krishna, the experience is immediate and direct. It's like water in the palm of your hand. You can drink anytime. You're driving to work, instead of the radio, or whatever it is, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Ram Ram, instead of Bollywood, then you, you can chant, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, and the difference is between 
the material world and the spiritual world, and you can feel it for yourself directly. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said, take this chanting yourself and also teach it to other people. And it's something that you can broadcast, and when people hear it, they go, what was that? When I was in Toronto, we were distributing Bhagavad Gita's and other books on a street corner in a kind of upscale, hip place in Toronto, Canada. And there were these two uh, businessmen from Africa, very well-to-do and uh, looked very successful. So I was talking to them, and one of them was a little more open than the other one to the idea. I think that the, one of them already had some preconceived ideas about spirituality and didn't want to like risk losing his soul to something else. And so the other one bought a book. And then I asked, as I always do, whenever I introduce somebody to the Bhagavad Gita, I say, do you believe in the power of prayer? And if they say yes, then I say, well, I'm going to teach you this beautiful prayer. If they say no, I say, great, I'll teach you a mantra. So I give them a card with the mantra on it, and I'll say, please repeat after me. So when I handed the gentleman the card who bought the book, and I said, okay, ready? Repeat after me. And I said, Hare Krishna. And then his friend, he put his hand in front of his friend and said, don't do it. I said, why not do it? And he, and he goes, you don't know what's going to happen. And I was thinking, that's very intelligent. We don't know what's going to happen. For us, it's a great mystery. Because Krishna, in some sense, is a great mystery. We can't know God. The Vedic Shastras say, Atashi Krishna nama adi nava ved with our senses, with our mind, we can't understand God. If we could, He's not God. Because He's the greatest and we're subordinate to Him. But the verse says, you can understand God if you do seva, means service. But what kind of seva? It says jihwa seva, means seva beginning with your tongue. And what, what kind of seva is that? Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. If you begin there, doing seva, the Padma Purana says, then God will reveal himself to you. And how he does it, and in the time that he does it, that's a great mystery, because it's not that it's a like a vending machine, and we put in the quarter, of, I don't know what you have here, a pound, pound, right? at least a pound. You put a pound in and you push the button and the, the drink comes out. It's not like that. It's devotional service. With a devotional heart, if but the devotional heart is, Krishna, if you reveal yourself after a hundred years, that's okay with me. It's up to you. I'm still your devotee and I'm here and I'm, and I'm just your servant. That's all. That's the relationship we have. And in that mood, that's very sweet. And then Krishna does reveal himself in amazing ways to those, to his devotees who are always worshipping him. So that's, you know, such an important question that you ask him. Thank you for telling your experience because that's really the essence of spiritual life. It's we have to experience it ourselves. We have to feel that. If it's a, an amazing philosophy but we don't have access to it, it's useless. Unless we can actually step into it from where we are now, not leave everything, become a yogi, move to a cave, then you can get it. No. It has to be from where you are right now. You're an accountant, you're an entrepreneur, you're a 
ballet dancer, belly dancers, part not him, whatever it may be, uh, you can enter it today, this minute. That's what Krishna is teaching in the Bhagavad Gita, pratyaksha. Immediately, directly, you can have this. Not to the arm, 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 not to the